The future of peacekeeping. It's important to remember that peacekeeping can be actually extremely effective and in reducing the severity, the civilian toll, the duration, the likelihood of recidivism in violent conflict. Countering domestic terrorism. Uh, how many people are really part of this, uh, of this movement? How many people are actually engaged in illegal or violent activities? A conversation on WhatsApp. You know, in, in Australia, in the US, we kind of can make the mistake of taking for granted that I can say something to someone else in private, securely, without it being eavesdropped on. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. UN peacekeeping operations are an extremely important part of UN's contribution to international peace and security. Peacekeeping expert, Associate Professor Charlie Hunt from RMIT University joins Lisa Shalin to discuss some of the challenges facing the UN in delivering these important operations, as well as the future of peacekeeping and how Australia can increase its presence in peacekeeping operations. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us on the ASPE podcast today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk a little bit about the state of UN peacekeeping at the moment. We've seen in New York that the UN General Assembly's Fifth Committee, which is the one that is responsible for finances within the UN system, they have reached agreement on a budget for UN peacekeeping going forward for the next 12 months, which is about $6.5 billion. And compared to most sort of military-focused expenditure, that's a, that's a relatively small budget to take forward effectively 12 peacekeeping missions across the globe. Those missions are deployed in places such as South Sudan, in Mali, in the Middle East, in Cyprus. There's a lot going on in that space at the moment. But I thought maybe we could start with a few of the challenges that we see at the moment in the context of UN peacekeeping. And I asked this question because I guess most of the times when UN peacekeeping tends to hit the media or the news, it's because something has gone wrong or civilians haven't been protected or something's failed. So what do you see as some of the key challenges that are unfolding for UN peacekeeping at the moment? Yeah, thanks for the, the question, Lisa. Um, look, I, I actually want to start by acknowledging that despite many challenges, and I'll go into a few, it's important to remember that peacekeeping can be actually extremely effective and in reducing the severity, the civilian toll, the duration, the likelihood of recidivism in violent conflict, often in some of the most difficult cases that, that don't attract other attention. So I, it's kind of my caveat to begin with that there, there are many strengths that I am an advocate of in, in UN peacekeeping, but certainly there's numerous ongoing challenges. Um, and they're, they're both in that kind of headquarters world in New York and, and the machinations amongst member states, but they're also in the field with the missions themselves. So at headquarters, a couple of key challenges that I think are particularly important. You mentioned the budget that's just been passed. Well, that's um, a sign of good faith from member states that they believe the missions at least need uh, a budget similar to what they have given previously, because what we've seen over the last few years is actually a lot of downward pressure on that budget. And um, key member states who pay uh, the lion's share of that budget seeking to reduce costs. And that's always been the case. There's always downward pressure on the peacekeeping budget. Mandates are rarely matched with adequate means. This is a commonly held understanding. But the Trump administration in the US um, pushing hard on the budget 
meant that peacekeeping for a time has been on a cliff edge, really. It's been unable to pay its bills. It's not been able to remunerate the major troop and police contributing com- countries, meaning essentially we're, we're operating on a line of credit from the global south. Um, and and it, this is a really major challenge. So it's a good sign they've passed the budget, which looks familiar. Um, but we should keep in mind that with the pandemic as well, it means that fiscal austerity is likely to, to sustain. So that's a major challenge. Another one at the headquarters level or the member states level is um, that there's been quite significant pushback from some other key member states, particularly China and Russia, on some of the liberal norms and principles that underpin have underpinned peacekeeping since the end of the Cold War in particular. And this is part of that bigger rules-based international order, if you like. So um, the human rights components of missions have come under attack, um, both defunding positions, um, for example. So that's another major challenge. And just quickly, a couple from the field. Basically, missions have faced kind of changing or evolving mission environments for, for a while now, but this makes it extremely difficult to achieve the intended aims of peacekeeping. It's become a lot more complex. Proliferation of non-state actors, transnational organized crime and violent extremism in, in particular, but other things which are shifting as well, climate change, induced insecurity, um, the blurring of lines between what traditional peacekeeping was about responding and who it was about protecting and from what. So there's shifts in the field. And the last thing I'd say, which is something I've worked on recently, is that missions in these environments have really struggled to identify effective political strategies for their what their aims are and ultimately the, the how they predicate their exit strategy. So this mantra that peacekeeping should always be deployed in support of a political process, not as a substitute for one, has often not been the case. And we've seen this leading to what have been termed endless missions where places like in the Congo missions have been there for over 20 years and they're kind of lurching from crisis to crisis rather than moving in a particular direction towards resolution of the root causes of the conflict but also the ultimate exit of the missions. So I mean they're just four major challenges I could identify many more but I think they're really important ones right now. No thanks very much for that Charlie and I think the point you make there about sort of endless peacekeeping missions um being deployed without a political strategy, I think so often, I guess, in my view at least, there's sort of this default by the international community or the Security Council when a, when a, a, a solution or there's not necessarily the same strategic interest from a particular group of countries, it tends to be the, the, the fact that peacekeeping is the default. We'll just send in a peacekeeping mission and see if they can figure out the problem. And I, I think we see a little bit of that sort of discussion happening at the at the moment, given we've had the news um, uh, overnight that the Haitian president has been assassinated. And already you see, for instance, um, some US political figures who have raised the idea of well, whether another peacekeeping mission is needed in that country. So it, I, I think, presents challenges for how peacekeeping is perceived and whether it's the right fit, I guess, for some of these contexts that we're talking about and these challenges, whether they be climate change or insecurity or intercommunal violence and so on. But with that sort of um, in mind, what do you see in terms of uh, how future peacekeeping missions uh, might look? So are we likely to see sort of this trend that we've had sort of over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've tended to have big multidimensional peacekeeping missions with, with what have been referred to as these Christmas tree mandates with lots of tasks and directions. Is that likely to continue or do you think we'll start to see a lighter footprint in in missions, whether it's current missions or ones that are likely to be stood up in the future? Yeah, I think it's a really important 
um, thing to be thinking through. I've actually been involved in a project with the UN looking at the future of, of peacekeeping, the future of peacekeeping operations project. And that really aimed to project forward about a decade, really, and, and try and identify some plausible scenarios for the context into which missions would would go. But uh, as you said, we have a more pressing and, and immediate example of the type of thing that can happen that can lead to calls for missions. And with Haiti, it's worth noting that oh, while people would have had fairly moderate views on it, the successes that's been the recipient of many UN peace operations over the years and, and until recently may have even been held up as an example of a partial success where the, the mission was able to leave and perhaps um, uh, leave the conditions for, for a more stable route forward. And this is a sign of how even in p the potentially easier cases, peacekeeping is so difficult to, to prevent that relapse. Um, the, the, the project I've been part of actually suggested really a lot of the work pointed towards the fact that we might move away from those big multidimensional complex um, stabilization missions that you, you mentioned there. And so it's much more likely that we'll see coalescence around the idea of smaller um, certainly smaller footprint when it comes to the military component, more, more akin to the special political missions which which exist at the moment alongside the big multidimensional missions. And here, what we kind of argued around that was that it's it's highly likely that they'll be in support of state governments, so much more like state support or even regime protection missions. This has been one criticism of the stabilization missions that really they prop up um, governments and sometimes quite unsavory ones with quite abusive track records. So um, potentially more of that. So, and if you, if you put that in conversation with what I said earlier about the kind of backsliding on liberal norms um, underpinning peacekeeping, then you start to see something quite different to the traditional idea of peacekeeping. The second key thing I wanted to say on the future, and this is an area I've worked on a bit too, is that many member states, particularly European and Western member states, like the idea of more police-centric peace operations. So perhaps as the military footprint becomes lighter, maybe even scaling up the, the, the proportion of police in a mission. So the Darfur mission, which has replaced the, the previous large mission, was also a big talking point around the role of the police there. So there's a lot of comparative advantages put forward. I won't go into them all now, but certainly the idea that because of their in-betweenness, they're uniformed and they can come in armed, formed units to do riot control type policing, but at the same time, they're civilian. So they're more people-centered and they can fulfill some of these roles that peacekeeping um, has traditionally not done so well, but perhaps needs to do better to better protect um, population. So more community oriented, better for short term protection, but also working towards building rule of law sectors for long term protective environments. Um, so, I mean, again, there's, there's a number of trends about future missions, but, but there are a couple of uh, key ones that I think we'll see play out to some extent in the coming five to 10 years. I want to conclude with a discussion a little bit about where Australia fits in this picture of, of UN peacekeeping. It's a topic you and I have talked about quite a bit over the last few years. And 
for those that may not be aware, you know, at the moment, the, the UN tends to list troop and police contributors based on the number of personnel deployed. And at the moment, Australia sits about 84th on that list with 27 personnel deployed to um, missions in the Middle East, sorry, the, for UNSO, um, which is the UN Truth Supervision Organisation, the UN mission in South Sudan, and then also the UN mission in Mali. So at the moment, uh, Australia's footprint when it comes to UN peacekeeping is, is much smaller comparatively to what it was perhaps 10, 15, 20 years ago, particularly when you compare uh, the level of engagement when we had a UN peacekeeping mission here in the region in Timor-Leste. And on, on some level, understandably, of course, not having a mission in the region with Australia's focus on the Indo-Pacific, um, you can see some of the, the, the rationales for that. Um, but on the sort of the same hand, uh, this raises some questions about, well, what should Australia's footprint in UN peacekeeping look like? And what can Australia be doing uh, to support this endeavour and to support its commitment to the rules-based global order? So, Charlie, I'd be interested in your quick thoughts. What do you think Australia should be doing in, in terms of its commitment to UN peacekeeping? And are we doing enough at the moment? Yeah, well, I'm very eager to think and talk through what these possibilities are because I think there is a role for Australia to play. There's a proud history of participating and supporting in many ways uh, UN peacekeeping and I think there are benefits for Australia nationally to be doing that in the national interest but also contributing to that collective security and like you say the, the rules-based global order that Australia is publicly committed to very much so um, and there are different reasons for different motivations for contributing, um, even the operational experience gained by deploying um, and not not to mention perhaps some pressure from allies with leagues of democracies and whatnot talked about, then perhaps there'll, uh, there'll be increasing pressure there. But yeah, the key ways I think Australia can to, to strike straight to the tangible kind of things which are feasible. I think we've seen Australia historically in recent history and, and, and today, um, put people forward into important leadership roles. So uh, Major General Cheryl Pearce, who's the force commander in, in Cyprus, um, is a great example where leader at that really senior mission leadership level um, has been put forward, but also within the bureaucracy. So Australia previously had a police, the, the chief police officer in the UN system was an Australian and a very impressive one. Um, similarly, I think the deputy or even the military advisor um, at one point was also an Australian. Um, and so those leadership roles, both in the field and at headquarters, are things which Australia has done historically and which um, which I think it could do more of. But you only get those roles, you only get those gigs if you've got some boots on the ground. So they work in tandem. You can't, you can't separate them. So I think it is important that Australia looks for opportunities to, to contribute more. And while it's not likely that they're going to send um, battalion strength contingents to, to missions in Africa anytime soon. We have seen the return of peacekeepers, of, of European troops and police um, to UN peacekeeping in places like Mali and places like the Central African Republic, following the drawdown in other theatres in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And so that's relevant to Australia too. So, so why not there? But as I said, if the future is likely to be more blue and less green, more police and, and less military, then that seems like an area where Australia could leverage its 
really impressive um, expertise and knowledge from its historical engagements, both in UN missions, but also the regional stabilization missions in the Solomon Islands, in, in Timor, and also through, importantly, through the police development work that's been done throughout the Pacific, because that's what those future missions are likely to be engaged in, the reform of police and justice sectors. And more important than any of that is the fact that Australia's experience is in the kind of post-colonial states the kind of multi-layered security and justice sectors, that it's not just about the institutions of the state, it's about the role of customary authorities and a wide range of actors that make up a landscape of security and justice. So Australia can bring that expertise through its police into the UN missions, I think, and there's a lot more that could be done there. So as well as being part of the discussion and sorry the final thing i think that is is no longer about boots on the ground but is something australia's done very well historically and is it's a really important aspect to continue and perhaps ramp up is beyond the leadership roles at the secretariat also just the advocacy work that the australian permanent mission in, in new york has been engaged in around issues like policing around issues like protection of civilians it's been um, really in, influential and important in pushing some of those agendas and really getting some tangible um, tangible um, outcomes in those areas. So there are a few ways that Australia could, could increase its contribution and I think it would bring benefits both in the national interest as well as um, those kind of collective common goods as well. Look, I, I couldn't agree more, Charlie, and I think the other point I'd, I'd just throw in there is there are also benefits, I think, in terms of our region, given that, uh, as you would be aware, there's so many countries in the region that are looking to either step up their peacekeeping engagement or are currently committed to missions that both we can learn from, but equally it provides an excellent opportunity, I think, for experience operationally to, together um, in environments that are not taking place within our region where things can often be much more sensitive. So whether it's for the military or indeed if Australia reconsiders sort of deploying police against peacekeeping missions, I think there are some excellent opportunities there. But look, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today and talking about a topic that I know we're both passionate about. And I think there's a lot of food for thought there for folks in Canberra in terms of where Australia goes with keeping and what it looks like for us to continue to engage in that space. Thanks very much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. In June this year, the US government released its first National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism. Professor Ari Perliger, Director of Security Studies at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, joins Dr. Tegan Westendorf to examine the strategy. They consider the strategy's four pillars, policy gaps, and its potential to address the threat of domestic terrorism in the US. Thanks so much for joining me today, Ari. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to Ari today about the new announced US national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. And for our listeners, this identifies two main types of domestic terrorism that are of, uh, on, on particular rise, one being violent white supremacists and the other being anti-government. Now, as a little bit of background, I think this is particularly pertinent to our Australian audience, given that we're experiencing a really similar rise in what we're calling right-wing violent extremism in Australia. And it's not entirely due to this, but I think there's broad sort of policy agreement that the COVID lockdowns have provided a type of uh, ideological quilting point for that anti-government sentiment. And so that's to say that it's provided something that what was a very disparate sort of fragmented range of groups with something to really rally around and to become much more coherent. 
So I'm wondering if the strategy is likely to have any issues in the sense that this anti-government sentiment makes it hard to have people not interpret that as that their privacy and civil liberties are being further eroded. I think this specific pillar of the national strategy is really focusing on the need to collect more information about domestic terrorism and specifically about uh, illegal and violent uh, manifestations of far-right groups, uh, far-right associations, as well as individuals who are affiliated to the American far-right. One of the major problems that we are facing is that there is no reliable data about the scope of this, uh, of this threat. And so what the government is trying to do is to encourage both government agencies as well as academia to develop better tools to track and to assess the scope of the threat, uh, how many people are really part of this, uh, of this movement, how many people are actually engaged in illegal or violent activities and how we can analyze this data in a way that will help us to formulate effective policies. Now, definitely, this is also plays into the narrative that is very popular among many American fire groups about the intrusive and authoritarian nature of, of the government. So, but to be completely honest with you, I don't think they need these specific policies in order to be already convinced about the government's uh, intrusion, as well as the government's tendency to erode their constitutional rights and basic freedom. So I think this is something that is already well-rooted and, and very popular among these uh, groups and movements. From what I understand by reading the document, I think it's really more about the need to get a better sense of the scope and the, and, and the nature of the threat rather than necessarily improving surveillance or collect information that is, uh, can further erode uh, the privacy of American citizens, mainly because we already have a lot of experience in in terms of these policies when we when the U.S. dealt with jihadi terrorism or jihadi groups. Uh, I think there's already established practices. I think in this case, it's really more about uh, having better data about this threat. The one element in the pillar which I'm more concerned about is this tendency to imply at least that. Uh, we need to focus on the internationalization of the far right. Here, I have to admit that I'm more skeptic, mainly because, first of all, if you look at the data, foreigners were never involved in any kind of violent or illegal far right activity in the U.S. Yes, mm -hmm. there's cross-border ideological inspiration, there's some kind of communications, and definitely some ideologies are uh, moving between borders, and there's also some attacks inspired perpetrators in other countries. However, we don't see the, the same level of transnational coordination as we've seen on the jihadi side of terrorist groups. There's nothing even remotely close to ISIS international networks or Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. international networks doing its I-days. I think that's a really interesting point because in Australia, we are similarly concerned with the sort of uh, globalized network that inspires different attacks. And, you know, the Christchurch attack in New Zealand was a great example and that a real example of that coming, coming home to roost for us because that man was, you know, demonstrably radicalized within Australia. And that shooting has since been referenced online by other, um, you know, violent extremists in attacks internationally. But similarly, I don't think we really understand sufficiently the way 
um, at least in, in, in the public and policy and academic space. I can't speak for what's happening inside intelligence agencies. Um, we don't really understand what that looks like in the specific Australian context either beyond that we're seeing the greatest amount of organisation and coherence in these organisations because of this sort of essentially being um, frustrated with lockdowns, giving people something to rally around. I'd like to take us over into pillar two now. I think it's quite a good segue because that's about preventing domestic terrorism recruitment and mobilisation to violence. So when I read this, I thought this is really what we're calling a, a counter-violent extremism approach, which unlike the um, strategic policing approach of CT is more about how do we make communities at, uh, that, are, that might be at risk or have at-risk members more resilient. And I really appreciated reading in this um, in this strategy that there's a focus on countering online myths and disinformation and fostering digital literacy. What do you think of this pillar? And I'd love to hear if you have some ideas of what this could look like in a practical context, because I think it sounds really logical when we talk about it. And I think a lot of people then struggle to think, well, what does that look like? How is my, you know, everybody's got an uncle who's just won't listen to reason <laughs> about QAnon or something like that. What does that look yep. like practically for communities? And do you think that it's got, um, that it'll work? So I think there's several, I would say, vectors of efforts in the US, uh, which are really reflected also in this uh, specific second pillar. First of all, I think there's a more and more willingness within the US government to adopt a public health approach, understanding that the problem is not just those specific individuals who engage in the violence, but it's actually a broader problem that is related to their breeding ground or the subculture that facilitate the violence, that, that legitimize the violence, that encourage them or make them feel comfortable to engage in uh, hate activities and hate-related violence. And if we understand that the problem is not just those individuals, but it's basically addressing the, I would say, the political and mental health of wider uh, mm -hmm. Populations, then we need to uh, engage in activities that can make uh, these communities much more critical about information that they absorb from different online resources, mm -hmm. uh, uh, teaching them about the way in which data and information is being manipulated. And there's actually some recent studies that were just published uh, about the effectiveness of what we can call inoculation or immunization, basically taking focus groups, teaching them about how data is being manipulated, and then testing their exposure to different extremist uh, propaganda. And we see that they are actually much better equipped and much less influential by this propaganda. So I think overall, there's a need to be a substantial effort to provide individuals and communities the tools to make them more resilient to disinformation, to mm -hmm. uh, hate propaganda, and so on. So I think this is one element of, of the pillars. In the US, I think it's a bit more challenging because not as with many other Western democracies, in the US, hate speech is protected by the Constitution. Mm -hmm. You cannot use legal sanction against someone just because of the language that you use, because free speech is protected. Not as with places like Germany and some other European countries where they actually have the ability to limit free speech if they deem this speech as something which is a threat to the democratic system and to the uh, constitutional mm -hmm. principle. So 
I, th I think, and, and this is why in the U.S. they cannot just limit the uh, dissemination of neo-Nazi propaganda because, again, they don't have the legal mechanism. So that's one aspect. Another aspect, and I think it's unavoidable, we need to find ways to incentivize the media platforms, the media companies to be much more aggressive in ensuring that their platform is not being used to incite violence, to incite hate, and so on. And in this sense, I think uh, governments are trying to find the right way, both in terms of collaboration as well as in terms of finding ways to incentivize these firms to be much more effective in preventing militant groups from using their platforms. Absolutely. Thank you. That was such a great range. And I might just touch on your first one. I think that's a really important point for Australia, this idea of inoculating communities by exposing people to this kind of information and, and digital literacy that makes them more resilient. Because in Australia, we know that our greatest at-risk cohort is children, average male children from, I think, 13 or 15 to 24, 25. So we're looking at people who are already moving through state-run institutions most of the time. And so I think that presents a real opportunity to involve include that programming within high schools in particular, and potentially even in universities. Um, and with your second point, that's so interesting about this discussion between our right to have hate speech versus our right to be insulated from it and what that means in terms of protecting the democratic project. And I think it's really brilliant and telling that countries like Germany have that really legally enshrined because of the history that Germany has. And I think that the German people are deeply aware of what that kind of scope creep looks like when you're have have a have a legal right to engage in that kind of hate speech in a broad way and how that what i sort of think of as this looming spectra of fascism that is sort of standing over democracy at all times and that our need to um, prevent that kind of speech in day-to-day -day life is about insulating ourselves from that spectra reaching in into our institutions and into our communities. I'd love to spend five hours talking to you about that point in particular, um, but I'm going to take us into pillar three, which is about uh, disrupting and deterring domestic terrorism activity. After 9-11, in those 20 years, both of Australia and the US made significant legal amendments in order to enable counterterrorism policing. And I think that this was broadly received by communities in, in both of these countries as a, a an equation of um, this threat of jihadi terrorism is, I'm probably using the wrong terminology there, I should check myself, um, is sufficient that I'm willing to make this concession to civil liberties so that I can be safe from what feels like a very present threat of that I could be murdered in my street. And we're now seeing this being calculated in a very different way by communities, again, in both countries, where people are instead saying, actually, I've really, you know, rediscovered how fervently I love and care about these civil liberties and rights. And I'm no longer buying this calculation of my government saying, let me make you safer. Let, let me take some of your liberties. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something that this strategy needs to address? Is that something that will just sort of take time to, to re-earn that trust? So I think that after 20 years of implementing different measures, right, and trying to balance between civil liberties and security, I think we have a better sense of what actually works 
and what doesn't work. So there's some things that are very clear. For example, yes, we need to give up some of our rightful privacy when we go to the airport, right? Because we want to know that our flight is, is safe. So we accept the fact that our uh, right for privacy is being violated at some level because uh, uh, people are looking into our possessions and search our possessions. So there are elements which the public is willing to accept. It understands that it needs to give up a little bit, but this is something which is, is acceptable. However, there's some elements of this kind of, a, let's say, this kind of expanded criminal justice model, which uh, the public is, and, and, and rightly so, is much more skeptical about it. And even law enforcement know that it's probably not the best approach. For example, uh, in most democracies today, the courts are much more judicious in allowing to engage in different types of surveillance or mm -hmm. uh, data and information sharing, right? So almost all democracies have databases about suspects or people that are being flagged because they may be involved in terrorism offenses. However, how this data is being shared, how this data is being used, how what is the bar that needs to be met in order to violate, for example, someone's basic rights, I think this is something that went up because the courts are now much more uh, willing to scrutinize and to uh, put some checks on the powers of law enforcement. And I think gradually, I think we find this balance. And I think what you see that this kind of pushback from these communities is, uh, is saying, look, 20 years experience, we've seen that this doesn't work. Let's think about other ways to, uh, to counter radicalizations within our communities. And I think that uh, also in the area of CVE, there's things that works and there's things that doesn't work. For example, what really worked is engagements that were supposed to increase the trust between the communities and law enforcement, mm -hmm. right? So the famous examples of the decision of an NYPD to uh, create a squad of police officers that will participate in cricket tournaments with local communities in New York City. So it was the first time that many of these Pakistani and Indian communities were actually interacting with law enforcement in a non-threatening, non-stressful way, just playing yeah, cricket right. with them, mm -hmm. right? So that's something that can create more trust, more, you know, a more uh, comfortable environment when they interact. So I think this is what we need to focus on, on enhancing trust. The more trust it is, the more familiarity there is, mm -hmm. I think we'll be able to really help these communities to address cases of, of radicalization. That's a really brilliant example. And I think that we can learn from that in Australia as well, because we're, you know, looking at passing new legislation that grants uh, greater policing powers and, and powers to our intelligence agencies. And I think that we're having the same issue of trying to figure out how to bring the Australian community, which is a really diverse set of communities really, along this journey of trusting our policing and intelligence agencies and our democratic institutions, um, so that we achieve our security ends while still having, you know, day-to-day -day life not be limited to this sort of like threatening interaction um, with those agencies. Ari, I'm going to ask you one last quick question because I know that we're running out of time. Um, pillar four. So this to me looks like a bit of a combination between counterterrorism and counterviolent extremism using the Australian terminology. And one of the issues that we have in Australia, I think, is that there's an increasing blurring between far-right legitimate politics and ideas, ideologies and narratives that feature in far-right extremist ideologies. Do you think that this pillar four is sort of directed towards that issue? Yes, I think it's an excellent question and an excellent point. I think one of the major concerns is that we see 
more and more mainstream political figures who are willing to embrace the narratives, the rhetoric, the language of the far right. And moreover, I can tell you as someone who is studying the American far right for more than a decade now, some of the more fringe conspiracy theories that were adopted just by the most extremist group 10 years ago, now they are actually appearing in some of the more mainstream uh, media platforms of the far right. So what we see is a transition of the conspiracy theories from the fringe to the center, the mainstream of the political discourse. Mm-hmm. And naturally, if mainstream politicians are willing to embrace these kind of narratives, it's very difficult to convince the public that these are conspiracy theories, that these are not based on any kind of facts. And when uh, mainstream politicians are willing to utilize a derogatory language or offensive language against specific communities or even portray specific communities as an imminent threat, it's mm-hmm. no surprise that we see a rise in hate crimes, that you see a rise or decline in tolerance towards other groups. So overall, I think that this bill are really trying to find ways to reduce the level of political polarization, the level of delegitimization of the other side, mm-hmm. and the toxicity of the, of the discourse in the U.S., If you cannot solve that, it will be very difficult to curb the threat of the far right. The problem is not that we have far right groups in the U.S. We always had far right groups in the U.S. The problem is that more and more of them now get legitimacy from mainstream political actors. And because because of that, they were able to really gain significant following. Thank you so much for your time today, Aria. Really enjoyed speaking to you about this. And I think that we have lots to lots to think about and learn from the Australian perspective, looking at this strategy and your reflections on the US. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be with you and, and thank you for having me. This week at Aspie, Will Cathcart, head of WhatsApp, joined Fergus Hansen for a discussion online on some of the challenges facing the world's largest messaging service. They discuss end-to-end encryption, working in countries with different government requirements, and the importance of security to WhatsApp. Here is an excerpt from their conversation. Let me just maybe start with a couple of framing questions that deal with the geopolitics and some of the big, broader international issues that we're grappling with here. So one of them, I guess, is this clash that seems to be happening at the moment between governments and technology companies. And if you think about the broader context here where there are a lot of technological races are becoming geopolitical, It feels to me like we're not really setting ourselves up for success here. We've got this antagonistic relationship between government and tech companies. And I'm just wondering whether you see a path, an off-ramp there, where we can have a more collaborative relationship where governments can work much more closely with the tech industry to try and both deal with some of these challenges that we've we've got and I think everybody agrees on, but just more generally, I think to have a more collaborative relationship in terms of how we go about this, not only with those societal issues that we've got to grapple with, but winning the, the big new races that we're we're confronting at the moment, whether it's our artificial intelligence, you know, deployment of that, uh, quantum computing, you name it. Yeah, great point, Fergus. I think so. I think there are a number of areas where private companies working with government can do great things and that the, uh, there's there's no need for it to be antagonistic. You know, for example, one of the things we've worked on over the last year, year and a half is helping governments provide COVID-related services over WhatsApp. You know, in Australia, the government set up a helpline for people to get accurate information about COVID. We've seen all around the world dozens, if not hundreds at this point of health agencies or governments providing COVID information, vaccine information, et cetera, all over WhatsApp. We think that kind of thing is great. 
you know, at the same time, I, I personally believe that it, it is incredibly healthy for as a private company for governments to be regulating and pushing private companies. I think that is an important part of the liberal, liberal democratic system. I do think there's areas where we could collaborate on, you know, in what places should private companies be pushed? For example, when it comes to the debate around end-to-end encryption, I think a better model would be for the government to be pushing private companies to have much higher levels of security protecting people's data. I think we should be regulated more strongly to have the strongest possible security, not be pushed in the direction of weakening it. Well, let me ask you about that question. So there's this, there's this arc of fragile democracies that runs basically from below Japan across to India. And that's really, to me, in this region, seems to be like it's going to be ground zero for uh, interference from you know, states that want to mess up with that information environment. They're obviously going through their own growing pains in terms of solidifying you know, democratic institutions and the like. What is the role for a, a company like WhatsApp in that situation? And what, is, what are you seeing in terms of the mega trends of you know, the, the swing towards democracy or towards authoritarianism in that really important band of countries in this region? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that tech plays an important role in is as tech services are successful all around the world, they encapsulate the liberal democratic values of the liberal democracies that they come from, either because that's just the culture or because the legal frameworks in those countries require it, incentivize it, encourage it. And I think that's a really good thing. You know, you look at WhatsApp specifically, it has made it free um, and secure for 2 billion people to say things to other people that they know. You know, in, in Australia, in the US, we kind of can make the mistake of taking for granted that I can say something to someone else in private, securely, without it being eavesdropped on. But that's not true everywhere. You know, the, the, the founder of WhatsApp, Jan Kuhn, you know, he, he emigrated from this, his family emigrated from the Soviet Union. And you know, when, when, when WhatsApp announced the addition of end-to-end encryption, he talked about remembering growing up in the Soviet Union when his mother would say, oh no, that's not a conversation for the phone. That's not a phone conversation. Um, the fact that now 2 billion people around the world in, in, in a range of countries have the ability to say things privately free from the fear that their government is going to listen to it is, I think, a very powerful thing in the promotion of human rights, in the promotion of liberal democratic values. So another area where this sort of issue around user privacy has come up is India, um, where, if I'm not mistaken, you're taking the Indian government to court at the moment over this issue of uh, traceability. There have been, I think there's been similar proposals in Brazil around traceability. And I'm just wondering, could you tell us what traceability is and what your view is on it? Yeah, absolutely. So traceability, the, the concept of the request, is that we and other messaging services should change how we operate so that a government could come to us and say, here is a message that someone on your service sent. We don't know who sent it first, but someone sent it. Please go find out for us who sent it. Search everyone in the country and tell us who sent it. We think that is, it's a very dangerous change to end-to-end encryption. Part of the, the, the security benefit that end-to-end encryption provides is that we don't keep copies of the messages people send. We don't have ways to reverse the messages that people sent. And that provides a security benefit to everyone that they know their messages are not going to be stolen or lost or surveilled. And we think there's real privacy considerations to it being, you know, possible for someone to go to a tech company and say, tell me who first said X. So, you know, we've been clear about that in India for a number of years. There's been an active debate with the latest regulations around traceability. We've challenged them in court as being, we believe, inconsistent with the privacy guarantees in the Constitution of India. 
But more broadly, if you look globally, I think there's these two debates, one around how do we protect from cybersecurity threats that are growing, be they from hackers or hostile governments. You know, we saw the SolarWinds attack. We at WhatsApp saw uh, an attack from the NSO group, a private company. We went public with that uh, a little over a year and a half ago. And the other one around, should we weaken end-to-end encryption to solve various purposes? I I believe the conversations need to be together and that end-to-end encryption is an important tool to protect us from the growing cybersecurity threats that are happening all around the world. On the end-to-end encryption issue, it's it's obviously this hot-button issue that uh, for governments, or lots of governments at the moment, can you walk us through what drove you, the drivers that drove you to implement end-to-end encryption on WhatsApp? Yeah, WhatsApp has always believed deeply in offering a secure service. Uh, and so I think, you know, the core driver is as security gets better, as there's more new, stronger security technologies, we're going to implement them because we are uh, designing the service in a way to pe- protect people's private uh, communication. You know, what are the drivers of that? It comes from a deep-seated belief that human beings should be able to say something to someone else in private, in confidence, without someone listening in. Um, and that goes, you know, whether you, whether you came from a place like the Soviet Union or you have a background where you've come from an authoritarian regime, or you're just someone who's, you know, thinking about the future. And as we build a more digital technological world, are we going to keep the ability that we've had as human beings for hundreds of years to just say things to each other in private without a company looking at it, without a government looking at it? We believe you should, we should keep that. We do not think that as the world digitizes, we should give up such a fundamental aspect of our privacy. And, and so on that, is, is this sort of a, um, a false debate that we're having then to say, well, if it's end-to-end encryption, then we're allowing crime to take place on these platforms. Is there, in fact, a, a, a different pathway here where there still can be co- cooperation with law enforcement that doesn't mean opening up everyone's private messages? Um, is that the case or is it a sort of a black and white situation that it's either secure communications or... Uh, and crime or, you know, one or the other. I don't think it's a black and white situation at all. I think we absolutely can have security and safety for people through end-to-end encryption and work with law enforcement to solve crimes through proper legal process with the information we have and proactively do things. You know, a lot of the debate, for example, has been around child safety and the sharing of child exploitative imagery. We are by far the industry leaders in finding and detecting that behavior in an end-to-end encrypted service. We reported more than 400,000 cases last year of child exploitative imagery to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. For comparison, some of the other end-to-end encrypted services have reported none. I think all of Apple as a company reported 256 total cases. We have 400,000. I think there is a lot we can do, but we just believe it starts from recognizing that end-to-end encryption is a necessary security technology today and important. And we should have that as a baseline level of protection and then do other things on top of it. That was just an excerpt from this week's conversation between Will and Fergus. To watch the full webinar, find the link in your podcast notes or head over to Aspie's YouTube channel. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.